Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Dom. How are you doing? Note to self, make sure we press record before starting to talk. It's the bane of our existence. I need to get like a cross stitch or something that just says press record and I'll hang it on my wall and look upon it every day. How many times did it happen to us that we started a thing without recording? With a guest or just you and me? You and me? With a guest, I think it only happened once. I think it only happened for real once because well, one time we caught it. We never did a whole interview with No, it. no. Oh, thank, thank God. No. Oh. Anyway, you and me, I think this is, this is not our first time in this uh, not recording rodeo. So. So today we have Vishan Chakrabarty, someone I've wanted to talk to for a while. One of uh, Hey, that's the, my line. I know. One of the urbanists and thinkers in this realm uh, that I admire most. He is an architect, founder, and creative director of practice for architecture and urbanism. And he was also recently the dean of an architecture school out on the West Coast. And so we originally wanted to bring him on to talk about progressive policies and progressive uh, politicians in cities and why they're leading them astray. Like why everything's going amok in cities run by progressives. Yeah. So the conceit was how progressive policies not only have failed to accomplish the outcomes they set out, but sometimes even led to worse outcomes. See San Francisco, for yes, instance. Yes. We spend a lot of time talking about San Francisco, New York, Boston, like the kind of coastal cities that are run by progressives. And their differences too. Yeah. And then how this also leads to a growing disaffection with the power of government to do anything, mm. something that is happening across the board. It's a line that I always come back to that moving to the U.S. turned me more libertarian than I expected. Mm -hmm. Seeing local governments that should be the model for what big government can do completely failing and by their own standards. And and Vishan pushes back on, on that because he's a big believer in the, the power of government to get things done. I to totally open to be convinced. But you, when you just look at what's happening in some of the uh, uh, great American cities, your heart breaks, mm. especially if you're somebody who loves yeah. cities, who wants to see cities thrive, who doesn't want them to turn into a libertarian Wild West. But what we've got right now in many progressive-run cities, not all of them, but most of what's happening now just isn't working yet. Right. And we get into this conversation kind of, I would say like maybe halfway through the interview. I think we spend the first half of the of the interview a little bit like kind of like defining terms a little bit and just like mm -hmm. easing people into the urbanism conversation because my background is architecture and urbanism journalism. So I've been thinking about these things for a while, but I'm cognizant that most people who come to Uncertain Things are probably here for, you know, the politics and the culture war stuff. And so we try to ease people in Vishan essentially gives us like a little history of American urbanism and housing and why everything's gotten so fucking expensive, which I think is really interesting and very, and kind of sets the, sets the stage for the rest of the conversation so that you can get into the nitty gritty with, once you understand the kind of basics of what the fuck's happened in cities these days. And then we get into a conversation that I slip into other talks every once in a while, and that's how your built environment and the city that you encounter in your day-to-day -day influences your personal individual well-being, but then also can have cascading effects on your politics. My theory that living in a miserable city 
which could sometimes start with just bad design choices and bad local policy choices can compound with loneliness, alienation, and ultimately an escape from the real world into the the virtual world of radical politics that people engage in online. Mm-hmm. And I think there's such an underappreciated connection between living in a happy-making environment and behaving like a normal person in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Vishan actually talks about. And right. I love that. Yes, you kind of, you two agreed on that score. What you didn't agree on is, interestingly enough, the, the, the importance of beauty, which I found kind of funny because he's the architect and he obviously considers beauty when he designs. But he, he's kind of evolved in his thinking that beauty matters less than kind of uniqueness or belo- or pl- the placeness of something, like how much mm-hmm. it belongs and where it is. And that's his has become his new de facto um, criteria for how how good a building is, essentially. And so that was a fun back and forth between you two as well, because you were, you were saying, no, beauty matters and we, should, we shouldn't ignore it. And he's, he I said... I think his challenge was, what is beauty? Define beauty. If you can't define it, then like, let's use this as our, as yeah. our measure, which was interesting. I really love this conversation. And I recommend to people that don't think they are into urbanism. Also, who are you if you're not into urbanism? But, but fine. But if you're here for being challenged and and seeing the world in a slightly different way, Vishan is the guy. I also liked that he was very able to put himself in the shoes of somebody on the left or the right. Like he, I wasn't mm. expecting that necessarily of him as a guest, which is something we do like seek out that quality in our guests, but we don't expect it, especially if you're not here to talk about. If that's not your thing, if you're not David French. Right. If that's not your lane. Right. Um, but he, he was very open to, to getting in, the, in, in the perspective of the, the, the liberal or the conservative and how they would approach cities, policies. Um, he was very, very game, which I thought was cool. Um, yeah. And, and if people do like this conversation and they discover they have an urbanism itch, they didn't know they wanted scratched. Um, they can actually check out my other podcast, Urban Roots, because Vasham was generous enough to talk with me there again. Um, and so we're going to release, uh, a, a kind of essentially a kind of a follow-up to this conversation where we get a little bit more into the weeds of, of the history of racism in planning and architecture and into kind of the future of, of preservation and what it means to, to build cities today. So if you haven't gotten enough of Sean by the end, there's, there's more out there. Shameless plug for Urban Roots. Speaking of shameless plugs, Uh we also started a newsletter. Oh yes. I'm very happy about this. We realized that at the end of these uh, behemoth conversations that we have on uncertain things, we rarely get a chance to sit down and digest. So we are pushing ourselves to confront or revisit the the talk that we just had and see if there's a highlight or a thought that stuck with us a week later. And we're going to release these segments on our Substack on uncertain.substack.com every other week because we publish, as you may have noticed, we mm-hmm. try to publish our episodes bi-weekly. So in the betweens, we're going to expand our thoughts mm-hmm. over over the newsletter, as well as sharing some updates on what we're working on and some of the uh, secret episodes that we are sending out to paid members. Oh, and you know, also do the newslettery thing of recommending some some good reads. That's right. And the, that newsletter is called Uncertainty, 
I think if you're if you're subscribed to us on Substack, you'll get it automatically, I believe. Right, Adam? I believe so. We put our faith in Substack. In the technology gods. So. Rate us on Apple. Give us five stars. Give us five stars on Apple because that really helps us get around. And share us with your friends and enemies. Tell people about us if you like our, our work. And um, with that. Vishan Chakrabarty. Vishan, thank you for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, so I am going to probably be mostly playing second fiddle, maybe maybe third viola, I don't know. But <laughs> the the Vanessa is going to lead this. But I just want to leave this conversation with at least two areas that I'm, um, I'm, I feel very uh, passionately about, very angrily about. And those are the questions of why are cities, one of my favorite things in the world, why are cities so fucking expensive? And why are cities, modern cities, so fucking depressing? So if you can lead me through these mysteries, I'll be, I'll, I'll feel my time is, uh, has been well served. Okay. I want to hear more about the second one. And the first one, I, 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 we can, we can talk about that for sure, but I want to know why you find them depressing. So we'll make sure to get to that as well. But Vanessa, take it away. Okay. You, you sure you, okay. So it's good. It's like, we have the, um, what do you call it? The gun and that we plant in the yes, beginning of exactly. the scene. We have we'll a come Jacobian, back to it. Jacobian question here. Yes. Right. Um, okay. So yes, yeah, so I do want to level set for, because a lot of people live in cities. They understand they're feeling the crunch. They're feeling the pain of high rents, high prices, but they don't necessarily understand what are the drivers that have led us here. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions for people is they don't necessarily understand that the lack of supply is one of the biggest drivers in terms of lack of affordability and high prices. So I was wondering if we can kind of start there, Vishan, as someone who is an expert in this in this field. Uh, is, well, maybe let's just start with the this assumption. Is supply one of the main drivers of affordability? And if so, why? And as you answer this, if you can also address some of the misconceptions that, us normal people have about why housing is so expensive. Because, you know, in a lot of cities, the conception is that the housing market explodes when tech companies move into the neighborhood, inviting tech bros that then bring the prices up and send the local communities scattered to the winds. That's the circle of gentrification. What's wrong with this story? So I could give you like fairly short answers or we could go back into history a little bit to kind of understand how we got here. Let's go back. We love history. A woman named Catherine Bauer basically invented public housing in this country. And she advised several presidents, wrote the National Housing Act for FDR. There was a whole sense into the, in the 1930s that we should be building housing for people. Uh, and, you know, remember what lived around the context. You're coming out of the Depression, et cetera, right? There was also this sense that cities were still a good idea right? And that the American dream, it's really interesting. The American dream was a phrase coined by a historian, John Truslow Adams in 1931, around the same period. And it spoke nothing about material possessions. It was not about a house or a car or a lawn. It was about equal opportunity across, actually remarkably ahead of his time, across races and gender it, it really defined this notion of America as this place of equal opportunity for all. Okay, what happens? World War II happens. There's this enormous industrial machine built for World War II. There's also a Cold War that emerges out of World War II. And so, you know, by the time you hit the mid-50s, 
the industrial machine is retooled to make cars and like basically mass produce a lot of consumer goods. And uh, the largest uh, infrastructure act in the country has passed the Federal Highway Act under Republican Dwight Eisenhower. And it was really done for two reasons. Um, the arms race and race. Um, so you have the arms race where there was a very concerted idea by the federal government that said we need to diffuse the population of the United States. So if you look, most American cities were much denser in 1900 than they were in 2000, right? Because the government actively wanted to de-densify our cities. This is coupled with a movement that comes along not too, not too far after that. So if 54, the National Highway Act passes, right? By the early 1960s, the original Penn Station is torn down because in New York because um, people have stopped taking uh, interstate rail, right? Because people are now driving and then, you know, flying starts to happen uh, by the mid-60s in a widespread way. But the other big thing that happens by the time you get in the 60s is, of course, the civil rights movement. Can, can I pause you one second there, Vishon? Because I, th- I think the, the second, what you're about to get into, I'm more familiar with. But I wanted to circle back really quickly to one thing you said was that the arms race was actually p- part of the reasoning for the, the government. So they wanted to de-densify cities as like a safety precaution? Yes, yes. Huh. I mean, I don't, I don't think we sitting here today... You know, I'm a generation that remembers, you know, my, my kids have to live through shooter drills. When I was in school, we lived through like these nuclear drills in the 80s. Like, and I never understood what what sitting under your desk was going to help you with with a nuclear war. But uh, for some reason, like, we were told to do this. But sure, I don't think we understand the amount of fear there was about this right? That this could actually happen, right? And, you know, the reason the bridges in the highways are so tall at about, you know, the, that 14th clearance, it wasn't for trucking, it was to uh, be able to move intercontinental ballistic missiles around. Wow. So the, the 54 Act is called the National Highway and Defense Act. So the highway, the whole federal interstate system... And that's not just part of those n- n- naming gimmicks when people try to pass their grafty pork-filled bills. No, no they didn't do that back then. <laughs> the Traffic and Freedom Act. <laughs> remember, right, exactly. I mean, remember, Dwight Eisenhower is our most decorated general coming out of World War II, right? He looked at, at, at the, and, and warns about the military. Like, there's, there's a whole thing about the military in the 50s that's really critical to understanding suburbanization. Right. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that there is this notion that you diffuse the population, but also look, it, it's, it's the perfect storm. It's three things at once. It is the Cold War. It is the, uh, the post-World War II industrial machine that wants people buying things, that all the stuff, the factories that get built during World War II, we now have to not just produce cars, but lawnmowers and you know, microwaves and like all this stuff that's part of a consumer economy. If you, if you move from an apartment to a house, all of a sudden your your number of material possessions will just explode. Mm. Right. Like, uh, and, and so that, you know, and the, the consumer economy was built around that. So that's the second factor. And then the third big factor is race because you then have a group of Americans who say we are equal to everyone else, 
and demand what uh, uh, equality means, which is like, just remember in the sort of pre-Reagan, pre-Thatcher world of America and before the civil rights movement, there people didn't talk about welfare for white people, right? Like, so the GI Bill and the highways and the mortgage interest deduction and like just all sorts of government spending that everyone thought was like perfectly fine and normal until the civil rights movement happens. When the civil rights movement happens, all of a sudden there's pressure to say, all those black and brown people out there, they deserve these entitlements as well, right? And to me, the, the, the again in MAGA, is not about going back to Reagan and Thatcher and having no subsidies. It's about going back to this era, this pre-civil rights movement era of when white people were on the dole and black people got screwed. Mm. And when you're talking about being on the dole, that's with a specifically suburban agenda, right? It's, it's about... notion of like, we're going to build the American middle class. Well, like, okay, great. That sounds great. It sounds like great political rhetoric. But what does it really mean? It means that like, it's taking the pre-World War II Depression-era population and saying, how do we give them the infrastructure? And I'm not saying this is a wrong idea. I'm just saying it needs to be a widespread idea. How do we give these people the infrastructure to be prosperous? And they did that, but just for a certain you know, segment of the population, right? And like, our, like all of like, mo- like most wealth and equity in this country is built around the assumptions and the underlying policies of this period, right? So you, so we do that. Mm-hmm. And then there is what's known as white flight, which I'm sure, Vanessa, you're very familiar with, right? Which is so by the time you get to the late 1960s, so now you've built all these highways, you've torn highways through yeah. communities of color in cities. And, you know, you've basically incentivized white people to move out into the suburbs and actively subsidize them to do this. So the suburbs are cheaper. So going back to one of the questions, like, why are cities expensive? So we'll, we'll, we'll get to this because we've artificially made the suburbs cheaper. We made, we've spent a bunch of government money doing that. We've made the school systems uh, 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 better and, and more affordable as the public school systems in suburbs. So this whole bunch of things happen that, you know, we can then get to the current day, but that sets the framework by the time you get to the mid-70s. At least. Okay, so let's let's pause there because I think some people listening may be somewhat skeptical about the fact that this the subsidization, uh, inherent in suburbanization, was only for white people. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I obviously most Americans understand that there's like a history of rec- racism in this country, but I think a lot of people don't realize like kind of the specificity of it and the, and the ways that black and brown people were excluded from it. There's plenty of really good literature on this. I mean, one yes. of the best books about this is called The Color of Law. It's about redlining mortgages. I mean, it's very well-known stuff. This should not be controversial, right? To be able to understand that you know, even middle-class black families could not move to most of these suburbs in the 50s and 60s. There were so many restrictions that would prohibit that from happening. And so you ended up with, you know, a a country by by the late 1960s that has this huge racial segregation going on, much more than what existed before, right? 
And then, of course, you get this new thing that happens, which is deindustrialization. So if you look at probably the most famous housing project in the country, Pruitt-Igo, right? Yes. There's a great movie in called... St. Louis, is it? St. Louis, yes. St. Louis, designed by Yamasaki, the same architect who designed the World Trade Center site. It, a lot of his buildings are rather ill-fated. Um, <laughs> destroyed in the 70s and has become a kind of icon for why public housing doesn't work and public investment in housing doesn't work. Except that um, totally uh, uh, kind of whitewashes what the real story is. There's a great documentary called The Pruitt-Igo Myth that was made by a former resident who interviews the residents. And you know now we look at Tower in the Park housing and we say, oh, it was warehousing the poor, how terrible it was. But in the beginning, it was actually quite glorious. It was middle class. It was mixed race. It was mixed income. St. Louis goes through a couple of things all at once. It goes through white flight. It goes through massive deindustrialization. People lose their jobs who are left in the cities. Crime rates start to spiral up. The St. Louis Housing Authority totally mismanages the housing, passes a bunch of racist and pretty misogynist policies against residents in Prudigo. And so for, for, for instance, just to understand what, what kind of like policies are being passed that, that directly affect housing. So, you know, black women are told that their husbands can no longer live there. Um, like there, there are, you know, there are all sorts of rules they start to pass. They start, they stop picking up the garbage. Mm. They stop, uh, they stop uh, maintaining the elevators. So now the stairwells become like incredibly dangerous, right? Like there's, there's this whole pullback of government money, right? In those things at the same time. We're still, like the biggest housing expenditure the country still makes is around the mortgage interest deduction, right. which, yes, is now available to people of all races and colors and available to people who buy condos in the middle of cities, but is still largely used by wealthy suburban homeowners. So there's a lot of housing expenditure going on. It's just going on towards a certain race and class of people, where in the meanwhile, after building public housing, we stop maintaining it. And so, of course, it's going to spiral into this, this sort of vicious cycle, right? And so, and you can, like, if you watch The Wire and you sort of see... Like, but I, I do want it because I, I uh, this is something I think that is so valuable to understand. An entire housing project gets abandoned in a way that disparately mm-hmm. affects Blacks and Hispanics. Can we understand what's going on with decision makers at this point? Like, do we know what's happening in City Hall? Is everybody just rubbing their hands, twirling their mustaches and cackling, huh, let's do racism or or is it more complicated? I, I would imagine it's also, it's not just City Hall, right? Vishan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining it's it's the conversation at the federal level versus the local level as well. And where does the funding come from? Well, so remember at the federal level, Robert Moses has huge impact federally, right? And so, you know, this notion... Uh, like there is a war on communities of color. If you look at Oakland, California, if you look, you know, there's community after community where they, they, they're driving these highways through. You know, if you read Richard Berman's book, All That Solid Melts Into Air about the Cross Bronx Expressway. So, you know, there's this kind of active war going on. Look, I, I can't speak to exactly what's happening in City Hall at that moment. But of course, in addition to structural racism, I mean, having worked in city government, look, what what both progressives and um, conservatives need to understand, especially at the municipal level, is 
at the end of it, you know, there's this old saying in, in city politics that picking up the garbage isn't partisan. You know, <laughs> th- there, is, there, is a, there is a basic budgetary concern that every mayor and her, his staff has to have. And when you've got a deindustrializing city, and you therefore have, you know, you have people in distress, you have crime on the rise, you've got this really vicious circle going on where you don't have industry paying taxes and you don't, you know, you, you have a pressure on the tax base for, for, you know, for crime and for police and for firefighting and like all of that stuff, right, which is very expensive stuff to do. And yes, there's a whole racist underpinning to that as well. But all I'm saying is that, you know, City government, like a lot of it's just like bubblegum and shoestring. You're, you're just trying to hold things together when your city's <laughs> in distress, right? And so a lot of bad things happen during that bubblegum and shoestring period. It's not like, you know, because city government is always, always, especially in this country, um, subject to the whims of state and federal government. And most cities dispense way more out in taxes uh, to federal and city, uh, federal and state governments, then they get back in tax receipts, right? So, mm. you know, th- they're always on the back of their heel in terms of just trying to make anything work. And so... So, so the impression that cities are basically subsidizing state expenditure is basically, and, and sometimes uh, federal expenditure is pretty much true. Absolutely. I mean, it depends on the city, but uh, certainly our big wealthy cities today, New York, San Francisco, Boston... They're all pouring way more into federal and state coffers than they get back. And generally speaking, the blue, sp- the blue states put much more money into the federal system than the red states. The red states tend to be federal recipients, especially of welfare dollars. Of course, that violates everyone's stereotypes, <laughs> right? But that, I mean, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of facts around this. Like it's not, it's really not that hard to prove. So, you know, um, so look, so this becomes, and so you remember famously by the late seventies, Ford, Ford says to New York, "Drop dead." You know, <laughs> cities, cities are a hot mess, <laughs> and I always find it interesting that, like, there seems to be a whole group of white progressives that like to um, uh, 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 kind of um, romanticize cities of the late cities, the seventies and the eighties. And like now cities are bougie, chain ridden, all of that other stuff, as opposed to what they were in the seventies. I mean, what I, I mean, sure, it must've been fun if you were white at NYU in 1978, but if you were black and living in Bed-Stuy and trying to raise a family, I don't think 1970s New York was that much fun. That's the time when you, when you would get flyers from the NYPD when you landed JFK telling you, well, your life is at your own hands. Really? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, I lived here in the late 80s and things were pretty tough still at that point. And I'm not in any way trying to justify you know, the policing policies right. that then ensued. But so... So, okay, so let's go back to the question that was asked, the first right. question at least. Why right. are cities so expensive? Right. Okay. Because we left off at, at public housing, not getting not getting funding, ma- not being maintained. So how do we get from there to, to the current expensive problem? Well, so, all right. So two other historical things, that, then we can get to the current day. Remember that Reagan in 1984 wins every state but Minnesota, his opponent's, uh, home state. 
So 49 states, there were no, there were virtually no blue states at that point. Massachusetts, California, uh, New York, every one of these states votes for Reagan. On the heels of that incredible mandate, with that kind of wind in his back, Reagan passes 86 tax reform, completely alters the public housing system in this country to this system of tax vouchers, right? Which is what developers use today to build quote unquote affordable housing. That all stems from Reagan's tax reform in 86. And then added to that by the mid nineties in the Clinton era, there's this thing called the Faircloth Amendment that basically makes it illegal for the government to build public housing. So before we go even deeper, can you just give a quick primer about voucher programs? Well, so there's two different kinds of there's there's vouchers for public housing residents. And so the idea there is that rather than the government building public housing, that a public housing resident gets a check that they can use towards housing expenditure. um, But often that check is nowhere near large enough to actually cover the housing expenditure. And people don't accept them because they're they're taboo and everything. Right, 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 exactly. So there's, so so it's both that the, that the actual money involved is, is too low and that there is a stigma. Yes. Correct. Right. And, and the, the, uh, the other part of it is the developer financing part of it, which is basically the government, and this happens to this day, provides uh, low interest rate financing to developers in exchange for building affordable housing that hits target income levels. And that depends on, you know, different projects are different. There are some virtues to that system. It tends to build mixed income housing as mm. opposed to, you know, kind of singular bans, but it's all left to developers. A lot of people on the left uh, are very critical of that system because they think mm-hmm. it puts a lot of money in developers' pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and But when you're in cities like New York and you hear the affordable housing debate, it largely centers on that system that was set up in the um, late 80s and 90s to build, quote unquote, affordable housing, because that was the replacement mm. for what used to be our public housing agenda. Right. So basically, the, the entire, it's not even just overtone window. It's the, the 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 realm of possibility around affordable housing has moved to the right and shrunk. Absolutely. And I do think there's an Overton window thing there because the Overton window thing there is has to do with. So like I work in city government for three years and I would meet like some progressive man bun sporting person at a party and they would say to me, oh, you work for the government. You must leave work at 430. Yeah. To me, yeah. the most central victory of Reagan and Thatcher is convincing everyone on the right and the left that government is inept and out to get you, right? That is their most central victory because it is such a widespread victory, right? And so this belief that the public can't build anything if, you know, like if there's 2% corruption, that's just crazy. But if there's all this corruption in the private sector, everyone kind of ignores <laughs> it. Like, right. like it's, it's, but it, to me, that's the Overton window. The Overton window is the way. That's, that's, that's the market's corruption. That's, that's the, that's the tasty kind. But, but the thing is, is to me, the Overton window is how much the left got convinced that the government mm-hmm. is a much of a problem mm-hmm. as the right. right did. Right. And so, okay. So now let's get to why cities are so expensive. And by the left, you mean, Clinton, like the Clinton era. No, I mean everyone. I mean, I mean, I mean young millennials and Gen Z people that I meet. Mm. I, you know, like I because 
It's like a lack of faith in institutions, including the government. Exactly, exactly. So everything's supposed to be DIY. No, and to, to be fair, I'm I'm Israeli, a country that is challenged by its um, socialist infrastructure, but also has gets a lot of things right. I'd say our healthcare system is strained, but good. When I moved here, bearing a lot of, let's call it um, socialist baggage, and living in New York for seven years, I, I keep joking, has turned me into a, a rabid libertarian in terms of my the degree to which I have lost faith in institutions. I'm not really a libertarian, <laughs> but the level of incompetence that you encounter in the city was shocking to me as somebody who mostly lived his life in, in Israel and Europe. Yeah. And, you know, I think the limitations of those comparisons is we live in a very large... There, there are poly- many. We, I mean, we just live in a very large polyglot society. We are not Denmark, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where they can just put all the brown people off in some peripheral suburb somewhere. Like we, we, like we live in a big, fractious democracy. To me, the more apt comparison is Canada. Mm-hmm. And like when you look at Canada, you know, it's really interesting. Like we've been doing this, this project in downtown Niagara Falls in New York, which is not a very, you know... Um, wealthy place historically has an extraordinary history. But the reason it's so relevant in this conversation is Niagara Falls in the United States has a sister city, Niagara Falls in Canada. So mm-hmm. here it is like, like a lot of demographics that are similar climates that's the same, you know, so there's a lot of control variables. And yet look at every metric on the Canadian side of Ni- Niagara Falls in terms of educational attainment, healthcare statistics, uh, mortality rates, asthma rates, like you name it. Right. So clearly you know, there's there's pretty strong proof just across the border that different policies get you better results. But it requires an activist government, is my point, right? Mm. That's not just DIY community groups figuring it out. Mm. It, it requires an activist government, a national healthcare system, uh, you know, like like things that have to like be functional at the government level. And that is harder in a big polyglot democracy, but like that's what we've got to figure out, right? If Canada can do it, we can too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> God damn it. Um, well, well, I guess we'll leave the question of, of to what extent Canada can do it in certain areas. But right, we'll, right, right. We'll, yeah, and Canada has all sorts of problems too. I mean, let's face it. I mean, they can't build any mass transit. Like they, yeah. they've got all they got all sorts of problems too. All right. So why are cities so expensive? You know, with the knowledge of that history, you then have a remarkable thing happen during the '90s. You know, uh, where and. To me, I believe in cultural forces as much as kind of economic forces. And, ah, you're talking you know, Adam's language there. He is Mr. Culture Matters. <laughs> well, like, you know, suddenly you have, because like you think about the depiction of a city in the 1970s, you know, good times, right? Like people living in public housing. Suddenly, you know, I mean, maybe it's the Cosby show that shows like a middle class black family living in Brooklyn. But then, you know, you get Seinfeld and Sex and the City and um, and Friends. And like, so suddenly, like, it's cool to be in the city. Right. And, you know, and, and this, of course, is is it comes simultaneously with this pretty tough policing policies that get adopted under Giuliani, especially in. New York City, where, you know, crime is considered to be something that has to be controlled. Now, there are a lot of really 
far out theories about why crime comes down so much that it's not just policing. There's a lot of different ideas about what happens. Yeah, it's it, it ranges from broken window to lead. So, <laughs> oh, and including and Roe versus Wade. Oh. In Freakonomics, they make this whole argument that the legalization of abortion is what leads to a drop in crime 20 years later. Like, I'm not saying I buy that argument. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a lot of out there arguments about why crime drops. By and, the, and I know having this discussion with a lot of smart people on, on the left and the right, that there is a consensus that there is no consensus, that there is mm. no, there's no grand theory, unified theory that explains the, the changes in crime pattern across the country. That's right. That's right. And I think that's exactly right. I think it's fair to say there is no consensus. And there, I mean, we may never know, but something shifts. And um, so suddenly it's like, you know, all these young people move to cities and cities become super attractive again. And they get rediscovered by, you know, frankly, by a lot of white suburban kids who are college graduates. Um, and this starts pushing up housing prices. This starts pushing up housing prices at exactly the moment when, you know, we, so we can't build public housing anymore, right? It's illegal, right? We have fairly limited transit infrastructure in most cities. It's not like transit infrastructure is expanding. And so most, so if you look at, at, at land values, you know, housing is expensive the closer you get to the center of the city. This is obviously pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom, all this other stuff, which we can get to. But like, the, you know, so there is this kind of devil's brew in terms of, you know, cities. And then, you know, like I work for city government right after 9-11 and right after 9-11, no one was talking about gentrification or very, few, I should, no, I, sh I should retract that. Very few people are talking about gentrification right after 9-11. People are worried that people aren't going to return to cities. We don't right. know. Just, just like Eisenhower is afraid of nuclear attacks, you know, in, Sitting there in like the middle of 2002, we didn't know how many terrorist attacks were coming. Right. Right. And so everything was, was like about taking what limited tools we had in city government to say, how do we get the city back up on its feet again? How do we keep, a, like, keep our companies here? How do we keep residents here? And, and just to quickly back up to the to the 90s when people are arriving, like what's the state of the development scene at that point? Because you said there's no public housing happening, but surely developers are trying to like fill the gaps here. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you asked this question, Vanessa, because it, 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 it pertains to then what happens in the aughts. In the 90s, first of all, developers are a relatively, like there are developers historically, like in New York City, like West End Avenue in the Upper West Side was developed by developers. There are developers, but... Development as an industry doesn't really mature until like the 1980s. You know, uh, remember the savings and loan crisis? There's a lot of like, there's a lot of developers that come through the 1980s. And by the 80s and 90s, what developers are building in cities like New York are largely uh, 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 rental housing mm -hmm. with lots of small studios and one bedrooms in them, right? And they're largely for people who are single people, maybe a freshly married couple before they move off to the suburbs and maybe some empty nesters who want to live around Lincoln Center, right? Like, like, like right. They're, they're, the assumption is still that people go to the suburbs for most of their life. Right. And that, you know, find, find a four bedroom apartment that's original from like 1995 in New York City. You can find townhouses, but those that's a whole different piece. 
developers didn't build townhouses for the most part. So in, in an apartment building, there are very, very few because there's just no demand. No one raises their kids in the city still, hmm. right? That doesn't happen until the aughts, right? And so what happens is after 9-11, right, it, we, in the Bloomberg administration, we turn up every dial we can to say, how do we keep the city alive, right? right. How do we you know, keep our companies here? How do we keep residents here? Uh, a lot of investments in public parks, in infrastructure, um, you know, things like the High Line, right? At the same time, at the federal level, right, there's a recession going on and quantitative easing starts. So they start lowering interest rates and a bunch of young new developers enter the scene and they're like, we don't care about rental housing like these older school developers. We want to kind of get rich quick. And, you know, so they start building condos. So like, like I luxury high end condos. So like I worked on the rezoning uh, with a number of other people in the city around the High Line. Mm-hmm. That rezoning called for 30% affordable housing, meaning that we assume most of it was going to be rental housing because that's what the market built. And that um, we had mechanisms in place to make sure that there are incentives for developers using those bonds that we talked about earlier, that you know, from the 80s, to build as much affordable housing as we could pass. So even though gentrification wasn't the watchword, there are still plenty of people concerned about affordability. What happens at that same clearly, moment? Clearly, they just didn't take enough into account the, the grave needs of people to launder money and have tax havens. <laughs> but, but, but you got to take a step before that which is, again, at the federal level, this quantitative easing totally changes the real estate market at the local level. Hmm. So there are all these people who now see great value in building condos. The other thing that happens, and the architect in me has to make this point, is the World Trade Center rebuilding right. starts putting world-famous architects on the front page of the New York Post. Right. We talked to Justin Davidson about this, actually. Yes. We did an episode about 9-11 and the, the memorial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so suddenly it becomes cool to hire big-name mm. architects to hire con- uh, to build condo buildings. And so you see all these condos come up, not just around the Highland, but all over the city. They're still going up. People pay crazy prices, yes, for various reasons, as was just pointed out. But you know, <laughs> one of the big reasons was that with crime down so much, a lot of those young couples that became, and I'm one of them, not anymore, but like when we were a young couple, right? You know, we had kids and we wanted to stay in the city. And so there's suddenly this demand for three and four bedroom apartments, something that was unheard of in the 90s, right? Mm. And so now, you know, all these people want to raise their families in New York City. Now, and cities all across the country. Right, especially the big, high-performing cities, meaning San Francisco, Boston. You know, uh, we can get to the the industrializing cities later, like Detroit. But so, what does that do? So, all of this comes together to form this massive affordability crunch that we're in today. The problem today is now, you know, sure, you can critique the right for not having the, uh, the whatever you want to call it, the compassion, the philosophical belief system, whatever it is, to figure out how to recreate truly public housing and public infrastructure in this country, right? But at the same time... And, and, and it's most charitable, let's call it, an honest disbelief in the power of government to build. 
That's absolutely right. If we were charitable. Right. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But here's the thing. I'm not sure the left has that belief either. And, you know, the problem, look, think about all the cities I just named. New York, Boston, San Francisco, Austin, Texas. I was just in Austin, Texas. These are largely progressive, you know, whatever it is, 90% blue. Right. And Ezra Klein, of course, has been talking about this ad nauseum for a year now about the ability, the inability of progressives to build. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, I think part of the problem, honestly, is that for a lot of progressives, they just don't believe in supply and demand. They just don't believe in it. Mm. Right. They just don't, they think that that's a right wing argument. Hmm. Right. And I'm sorry. And to clarify, like the the lack of supply that we're talking about, like as, as you've described, there is no, public actor trying to safeguard the creation of housing that people can afford. There are private actors working, but the vast majority are targeting a high-end market because that's where they know that they will recoup their investment. And so then that leaves a, a complete lack of any housing options for those who are somewhere in the middle. And then that drives up pricing. Is that what you're saying when you're saying lack of supply and demand? The only thing I would dispute in what you just said is I think there are public actors. Look, if you look across, mm. just taking New York for a second, if you look across the Bloomberg, de Blasio, and, um, and Adams administrations, there's not a lot of daylight in housing policy across those administrations. Mm. You know, the fact of the matter is there are very good civil servants who've worked in all of those administrations trying to build more housing and more affordable housing which by the way, includes market rate because you've got to create market rate supply. That's the only way you're going to bring down pricing. And the left refuses to believe this. And I can't tell you, so I can't tell you how many I've been involved in like, so like Domino, the Domino uh, sugar, sugar refinery factory. and the waterfront, mm-hmm. right? So I, 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 I helped run okay, the master can you, plan. Can you just describe that uh, development? So, I helped to run the master plan for that project. We're designing, we're, we're, my architecture firm is actually designing the sugar refinery, which is the kind of creative office building at the heart of it. But, you know, we're building thousands of units of housing. A certain percentage is affordable, a certain percentage is market rate. And public meetings. I mean, I remember having this discussion with a woman. I said, listen, you need to think about this at the broader level, which is, you know, we have all sorts of people who want to live in the city. You have newcomers who want to live in the city. They need housing. And just even think about it from a climate perspective. If we, if we shut the gate and say the door is closed, you're going to force people into sprawl. And she looked at me and she said, I don't care. Mm. Right? Because, you know, and so, so talk to people in the Blasio administration about their attempts to site homeless shelters in progressive neighborhoods in the city, right. right? So we have this huge problem, right, in most of our, and, and frankly, more progressive cities. I mean, if you saw uh, Michael Kimmelman's article about how they're tackling homelessness in Houston, it's really interesting. I mean, like, like you know, <laughs> in some ways, one of the most interesting things that could happen politically in this country 
is all of the crazy anti-housing policies and anti-business policies in California may push so many Californians to Texas that Texas might swing right. blue. That might be actually the most ironic like victory the progressives score is because their own <laughs> misguided policies in California might turn Texas blue, right? So yeah, I want to, if I can, I'd like to read you. So I shared with Adam um, an article by Nellie Bowles. Maybe you saw it come out in June. Oh, I was just going to quote, I was just going to quote that myself. Uh, I don't know if you read this article, Vishon, but it's just basically about like what the, what the hell happened to San Francisco. It's excellent, very well written. And I just wanted to read this, this quote that I have. I mean, I guess Adam, you could also read a quote yeah. if you'd like, but um, she says, I used to tell myself that San Francisco's politics were wacky, but the city was trying, really trying to be good. But the reality is that with the smartest minds and so much money and the very best of intentions, San Francisco became a cruel city. It became so dogmatically progressive that maintaining the purity of the politics required accepting or at least ignoring devastating results. And I think the point that she's making there and that I'll, I'll tack onto it because I think this is kind of understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about progressive policies or the delta between intention and results. We're, she's call, she called it, um, she called it LARPing at progressive policies. And, and, and I think that is key. Live action role playing, if you know that phrase. I don't. I'm too old, clearly. <laughs> but it's basically like playing D&D &D only with costumes. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Her point being that they talk about equity and, and they talk about, you know, climate change and they talk about all the right values, but what they do is perform allegiance to the ideas rather than to actually achieving these as results. In so doing, they close their eyes to what's actually happening to people in the city. That's right. I mean, look, I, as you may know, I was dean of the architecture school at Berkeley. I had to step down from family medical reasons, but I was there during the pandemic. I went to Berkeley as a student, and that was a long time ago. The Bay Area, um, if you're a student of cities and regions, what you see in the Bay Area is the precipice of what happened in Detroit in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you, first of all, you see uh, one industry dominate the Bay Area. That industry, to me, the biggest problem with the tech industry in the Bay Area is their lack of any kind of geographic loyalty. So as much as your mm. more progressive listeners don't want to hear this, one of the things I found incredibly refreshing when I moved back to New York recently was how much... New York City's business community believes in New York. They feel right. that their fate as a business community. So, you know, like JP Morgan Chase is building a $3 billion headquarters on Park Avenue. I'm, part, I'm working on the project, full disclosure. And, you know, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan Chase, it took him a week to, like, in the middle of the pandemic, to say, no, nah, we're staying. Right. All of our employees mm -hmm. are staying. You know, the tech companies in California are having a heyday with, well, maybe we just move to Texas or Idaho, or maybe we don't even need an office anymore. There, you know, because part of the problem there is you also have this thing of like why people live there in the first place. You know, there's so many San Franciscans you can talk to who like live there because they can go kayaking somewhere an hour and a half away. It's not like how many major cities you go to where people live there because they can get out easily, right? Like that's <laughs> not, you know, so you have that as a kind of underlying cultural 
kind of uh, dynamic. And then it's everything you just said. You know, the policies, the policies around homelessness are kind to be cruel. Uh, the housing policies are absurd. The mass transit policies are absurd. Everyone's still in their car. Um, and the fires are getting worse and worse. The dry- And so the whole suspended disbelief thing around what made California this kind of extraordinarily special place, I think is really starting to crack, and especially in the Bay Area. But I think this is, I think it's really important to talk about this mm-hmm. because at the national political level, we have such a complete manifold disaster in the form of Trump and his takeover of the GOP, that it makes it fairly easy to ignore problems within the progressive part of the country. And I don't, I think we do that at our peril, because if you're going to win over the rest of the country, you have to have policies that you can argue work. And like that, we, we really do have a problem. And like, I'm not talking about Tucker Carlson diatribes about San Francisco. I'm talking about being truly introspective about what is not working about progressivism. And a big part of that is our inability to build housing. So let's maybe, let's talk about like the two sides of the progressive problem as I see it. And let's, let's see if you agree, but it's, it is both the policymakers, the, a lot of people who maybe got uh, elected in on the wings of anti-Trump rhetoric that are trying to push progressive agendas that maybe aren't being functional. And then there's also the progressive lame person uh, that is incredibly anti any new development. We've kind of talked about both of those streams. I guess let's, I want to first ask you, which is the more important driver of the lack of supply and the and the lack of affordability is it the the policy or is it the backlash or some combo? I don't think it's the. I think it's much more the local problem. Really, because look, here's the thing: whether you talk to, and I don't talk to any of these people, but if you look at the housing plans of Elizabeth Warren or um, or the Biden administration, the, the the federal government. You know, I was at the AIA, the American Institute of Architects National Convention. I was a keynote speaker a couple of weeks ago, and Obama did the last talk. And Obama literally talked about this because mm-hmm. he was in front of the AIA. He talked about what a huge problem sprawl was for. He he got every single issue. He understood what a huge problem sprawl was for both the environment and for you know social division. That we needed to build more density in our communities, and that and he called it out by name. And he said, listen, the problem we've got is in my party, he said it that way, in my party, people don't want to build in their local neighborhood. Now, so so like, I think, I think we're going to see an interesting moment where a presidential candidate, they might not stay it on the debate stage, but in their policy platform somewhere is going to be something about local zoning overrides, just like they tried to do in California with SB 50, because where the pendulum, where things went t- terribly, horribly wrong, is the not Jane Jacobs herself, but the aftermath of Jane Jacobs. Meaning that, like, I think... Jane Jacobs being one of the great urban writers. Uh, right, death right and, who fought and defeated Robert Moses famously. Life. But is it death and life of great American cities fought Robert Moses? When, when we talk about Robert Moses, I was going to introduce him as the arc villain of the Jane Jacobs saga. Right. But the problem is that binary. 
The problem is how uh, how vapid that binary has become and how useless it's become to the problems we face, especially climate change. Because, you know, so what what became important about Jane Jacobs for too many progressives wasn't the ideas she fought for, like mixed use, density, things like that, but her methods, mm. right? It was the David and Goliath. Right. I can... I can like muster local community groups and stop things. So, but wait, before, before, in case people don't know the the basic narrative, let's t- tell like the Passover story <laughs> of uh, um, Jane Jacobs. Her famous work, "The Death and Life of Great American Cities," is a uh, screed against the state of urban development perceived wisdom during the '60s and and '50s, which thought of affordable housing as something that you isolate from the center of the city, something that you develop as sort of a self-contained utopia or a self-contained suburb on the outskirts and in part gave us what we now know as the project. And one of her many arguments was that this approach ignores completely the elements that make a city safe and thriving. And those are the interconnectivity, the fact that you can move around easily, the fact that you see other people and where you get all those ideas like the uh, sidewalk ballet and the eyes on the street. And in contrast, Robert Moses was this um, baron of development that basically wanted to put streets through everything, believed in cars, highways, no matter what, community gets deracinated in the process. And the story of those two figures comes to a head when um, Jane Jacobs fights to protect Washington Square from being turned over uh, by by Robert Moses' plans. And this is where what seems like Jacobs' commitment to community and the betterment of the human condition ends up defeating foils the plan of Robert Moses to destroy it. I don't remember exactly what uh, Moses's plan was. Probably put a highway through it. That's, that was usually his MO. Yeah, Moses was trying to put the Lower Manhattan Expressway through Lower Manhattan. Now remember, this is after Moses has successfully put highways through all sorts of communities of color and other also, but then you, right, but then Jacobs to save Lower Manhattan, you know, basically, you know, look, Jacobs is a brilliant observer She's a journalist. She's also a neoliberal economist. Most of her books are actually about neoliberal economics. Kind of interesting. But she, you know... Which is anti-planning. She's anti-planning. She's anti-top-down regulation. And to- she thinks that top-down planners are idiots and that they don't, as you say, they build things that segregate the city. And she's saying, look, cities are really these fine-grained things, right, with doorways and small blocks and mixed uses. But what I'm saying is, is that I think so many of the acolytes of Jacobs, rather than focus on the substance of what she was observing, focused on Jacobs knew how to organize communities to fight City Hall and fight the big power, right? right? And so look at how that power is used today. So look at like... She became a symbol for the newly energized left-leaning urbanist community? For localism, Mm. right? For localism. So look at... The 14th Street Busway, which I think is a brilliant thing, right? Mm -hmm. So 14th Street, over the course of the last few years, 
was converted into like no private cars. It's only there really for buses, bikes, etc., and deliveries. And what did the same West Village community that Jane Jacobs is from, what did they do? They used Jane Jacobs methods to sue the city, mm. right? Say, no, 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 no. Because of course, what's happened in the intervening time, West Village has become incredibly wealthy. Even the people who live there during the Jacobs era have enormous equity in their townhouses and all of that. They all drive around big cars and they want to be able to drive their cars on 14th Street. So, so instead of learning the lessons of Jacobs about, well, you know, really it's about a walkable city and all of that, they're saying, no, 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 no. We're going to use the methods of Jacobs to fight City Hall on this busway. That to me is the kind of archetypal story of what's happened in the progressive arc around these kinds of politics. And so I do think we're going to see a moment and like, like California is usually the canary in the coal mine of the stuff where you're going to start to see state and federal governments saying these local communities are out of control. And what they're going to do is they're going to say, we will give you blocks of money to build affordable housing, to build you infrastructure and so forth. But you're going to have to override local control because local control is always going to fight it. So maybe let's talk about the origins of of that local control, because I think this is one of the things like if I ever write a book, it's probably going to be about this because I would love to live in a world where you as an individual can have influence on the neighborhood that you live in, the community that live in, that what happens and how it shapes around you and serves your needs and desires. And I think the original intention of giving control back to local communities to say, in order to say no to certain projects was, again, well-intentioned, right? I think it came from a lot of, the result of a lot of racist top-down planning that completely decimated communities. And I think the idea was like, let's reform the system so that people can push back. But of course, what's happened now is that it's running wild and people are acting in their, in small self-interest in a way that doesn't serve the public good. So what, what is your feeling about the, the ideal way to bring in community engagement when it comes to development. Also just noting that community engagement has a, a much longer tradition in, in American culture that, that precedes the, the good, the, you know, the, the more rose tinted version of, of wanting to, to empower local communities mm-hmm. to redress racism. You know, it goes back to, I think the Puritans hmm. of New England, the idea that you govern locally. So here's the thing. I believe in local control as long as there is true representation of the community. And that's, so there's been a lot of studies done around the fact that community board meetings tend to attract their mainly wealthy, white, older residents, because that's frankly the people of the time to sit through a three hour community board meeting on a Thursday night. What I'm finding that gives me hope on this entire topic is that the pandemic opened up something that wasn't really that much of a thing before, which is most community board meetings are now on Zoom. Mm. And what that means is, is that what I'm starting to see is a much broader range of participants in these meetings and people who want housing in their neighborhood showing up. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of those people maybe couldn't have come on Thursday night for three hours, but they can they can log on for 40 minutes from their home, right? While they're still, you know, if they've got a sleeping kid or they're taking care of an elderly parent or something, they can still do that while they're uh, participating in the public discourse. Uh, And I think that is a groundbreaking development that's really going to shift 
the course of this whole conversation. Um, because community participation prior to the pandemic, I think, was something that was largely um, the province of the privileged. And I think now it is being opened up to something that's truly something that's public. And like that, I think, is a very welcome change. Here's where I'm not convinced that this is an optimistic sign. It's based on what you've been saying, actually. Because part of the problem isn't just that people make choices that are, you know, ultimately, oh, this is the first time we're using this word, nimby, uh, uh, nimbyistic, um, nimby flavored. It's, it's also that people don't necessarily understand how their choices translate to results. And the problem that, that Nellie Bowles was describing was that people truly think that um, two contradictions coexist in the realm of it is more equitable to prevent this new tower from rising in the middle of my neighborhood, but also we need more affordable housing. But to quickly go back to your anecdote, you were describing your experience of trying to highlight this contradiction to people you work with. And you recall the person saying, I don't care. So what's behind that I don't care? Well, so here's the thing. I think when you say people, you got to be really careful because sure, I am finding, and I hate to be so binary about this, mm. but there is a big, big difference between wealthy white progressives who fight these things and um, mm. you know, black and brown communities that I work in where I find a fundamentally different attitude. A lot of it's an attitude that's a difference between owners of real estate in the city versus people who rent, right? Uh, because renters tend to want more supply, right? They get it. They get that if there's more rental housing, their rent has a chance of creeping down, that, that there needs to be more subsidized rental housing. Mm-hmm. So for, let me ground it in an example. So we're working out in East New York uh, for a big 2,000 unit all affordable housing. It's a hundred percent affordable housing project, uh, for a pastor. We are going through the community board process. It's been a five year process. I wish it wasn't so long, but we got a very positive, uh, resolution from the community board to go forward with the project. And I think that's incredibly important. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the voices who are participating are a lot of people who are lower income, People who are renters and saw the need for more housing in their community, as opposed to basically, you know, someone who lives in the West Village, they own their townhouse, they got theirs. And mm-hmm. so, sure, they can, to go back to your, uh, uh, what is it, LARPing? <laughs> LARPing, yeah. LARPing, LARPing, sorry. Right, to go back to your <laughs> LARPing thing, they can be rhetorically as progressive as they want. Right, they're right. sitting on all their equity, their kids are in college, you know, they like, they, like, and so they can prattle away and have all the bumper stickers on their car that they drive through the West Village and all of that stuff. There's just, there's an enormous distinction in the public in those two, you mm. know, kind of groups. And again, I know I'm being purposefully, I'm, I'm, I'm making right. characters simplistic. now, but, and I know I'm being simplistic, but I think that it's important to understand these differences that are out there. Before you take us to a smarter uh, point, I'm just going to say, say a, a very dumb um, observation that this is almost always the case that ideological purity is the, the purview of 
rich people and almost always comes with a with a NIMBY flavor on whatever topic. NIMBY um, to anybody who's not who's not you know reading I don't know Gothamist is um, not in my neighborhood, not in my backyard, not in my backyard. Sorry, not in my backyard. Um, uh, emphasis on my. And usually the idea is that the same people who would talk about the importance of certain policies would not give ground in, in things that they care about. Yeah, sure, we need this this new development. But not in my backyard. But, but, I don't, but, but don't block my view. Right. You know, we were just talking about foreign policy with uh, Walter Russell Mead, and he makes a point in his book, The Ark of a Covenant, about Jewish immigration that surprisingly maps onto this discussion – all throughout American history, it was the position of the conscientious uh, progressive, and this is we're actually talking about some of the origins of progressivism back to uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, that you, you that you want to embr- that you want to take care of the needy of the world, and that you want to see um, the the Jews cr- currently under persecution in Germany um, taken care of. But of course, of course, we're not going to allow hundreds of thousands of them to immigrate into the United States, nor are we going to pressure anybody to do something um, around the world that contradicts our geopolitical interests. But we do, but we, but mm. we would like to see it happen. We, it, would, it would make us feel good if this happens and we can very vehemently expect other people to do the work that we will never do. Right, don't ask me to take care of it, but it would be nice if, sure nice if it happened. And you're seeing the same thing happening right now with Im- immigrants from the border, where liberal cities like New York are happy to talk about being a sanctuary city until... Uh, Abbott and um, I was going to say Costello, what's his name? Uh, uh, DeSantis decide to pull an admittedly ugly troll and just bus dozens of migrants to those cities. And suddenly those cities change their tune and say, oh no, sorry, we're full. Right. And in that process, what you've basically done is loaded the gun of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. <laughs> right. I mean, like that, th- 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 you know, that's the thing. I mean, it's just you have become your own straw man. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, would, I do want to like throw in like two confounding elements, I think, to the to the binary that you gave, which you admitted is simplistic. But I'm going to I'm going to throw in what I think are kind of confounding elements here. I think on the one hand, you there it is very understandable that someone who grew up in a system where they were told that you have to like buy your property, accumulate your wealth, and then and tie everything into it, into that property value is going to be incredibly guarded about preserving that because the whole system has been set up for them to to hold on to it for dear life, no matter the consequences. So that's like thing one. Thing two, I do think that there have been unusual alliances going on between the privileged few holding on to their property value or their perception of what will increase their property value and lower income people, generally activists, uh, housing activists, people of color who are so uh, holding on to their ideals so tightly that they won't, they won't compromise a smidge. If it's not 100% affordable, I don't want it. It must be everything or nothing. Well, actually, these days, a lot of 100% affordable stuff is still going down in city council. I mean, that, like, that, that's where it gets really, you know, amazing that, you know, that happens. And so you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But that's the thing. And I think it goes back to Adam's point. I mean, like, people have become very, very fixed. But here's the thing. I just have a lot less sympathy. Mm. Look, 
I'm old enough to grow to have grown up in that like you should buy a piece of property right. and like you should build your equity. That doesn't mean I mean, sure, it's your property. I still believe in that, but like that doesn't mean you do everything you can to enhance your property value at the expense of everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of like saying that, well, because I never used to recycle, I shouldn't now. I mean, <laughs> like you you've got to evolve as a human being, right? And so I, I just look and let's let's take it out of the binary for a second into like we were working on a big planning project in Queens, and you know this young woman with kind of greenish hair stood up at a meeting and said, "Well, I don't want any new housing. I just moved here from Austin, mm-hmm. and I, I'm witnessing the gentrification in this community." And like, I'm standing there with like, like a lot of people who have been through like the front lines of these wars for 20 years. And this person is the poster child for gentrification. Right. Right. And has absolutely no introspection about it. And so I think whoever it is, right. Like, I just think introspection and self-criticality is really important if you're going to convince others of your position and pull broader segments of the population along with you on your journey to whatever success you're trying to create because we we just you know like at the net i've driven cross country four times and you're not going to convince people in the middle of the country with the ideological purity test that you've mm-hmm. got in the middle of the coast. And the people who just want, you know, to succeed for succeed from the union, like that's okay. That's their prerogative. If that's what they want to think. But like, I, I don't know. I just, I, I just don't feel enough of those qualities of introspection mm-hmm. and, 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 and um, self-criticality going on to convince others. By the way, the, uh, the gentrification cognitive dissonance. Mm. If anybody is is amused by these characters, Google something like gentrification guilt or should I feel bad about being a gentrifier? You'll find dozens of op-eds that try to quell the anguished heart of the bleeding liberal <laughs> saying, yeah, you are a gentrifier, but you know, if you do it with enough respect to the local community, it's fine. And respect to the local community means you, you say good morning to the, to your local baker. I, I mean, it's nuts. I've always lived in incredibly boring neighborhoods in New York because those tend like, so for instance, like, you know, there are parts of the Upper East Side that are cheaper hmm. than the gentrifying parts of Brooklyn. Hmm. But people want to live in the gentrifying parts of Brooklyn because they're cooler. Right. Like, I don't care how much respect you have for the local community. That is not cool. Like, that's not okay. That's that you have to think, right? Like before you sign that lease. And so I, I don't know. I just I just think it's always easy to point the finger at the other person. Right. And so um anyway, but that, but hopefully that answers your question of why cities are so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> no, but let's go at it from the other direction also. We are in uh, in a reality where, as you pointed out, one of the dynamics is um, reurbanization. So demand density is at a high crunch. And one of the reasons people move to cities um, beyond job opportunities is available culture and connectivity. And when a city makes it 
difficult to get from one side to another. Like we live in Queens. Our friend Bacha lives in the depths of Brooklyn. And getting to her takes me almost twice as long as it currently takes me to go from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv in Israel. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's because a third of the land in most cities is roadbed, is street. Right. Like a third of New York City street. We dedicate the vast majority of that to private vehicles, right? Because, I mean, when you look at that, when you look at that on Google Maps, right, and you look at that trip you're talking about, Aren't you astonished at how little the distance is? Mm-hmm. The distance is nothing. Yeah. So a high-speed bus running on that street with no private cars on it is going to get you there in no time flat, right? Especially in a post-pandemic, lattice kind of an idea of a city where Central Business District is really kind of a little bit of an, uh, of an anachronism, right? Where you're going to see work flattening out across the geography and territory of the city. Doesn't it make sense to take out most of the private cars and have a network of high-speed buses that are electric, that are running people all over the place so that you, you know, so that trip you're talking about should take no time at all. Mm. This is not, you know, like Detroit is a much, much bigger city than New York geographically, yet the travel times are crazy here because we've just taken it for granted that people should be able to drive you know, 4,000 ton, mm-hmm. 4,000 pound vehicles across our city streets to drop their chubby kids off at school. And here's the crux of the matter. And then this is what I need your help understanding. If we move away from you know, scoffing at the uh, green-eyed hipster girl. Green-haired. Green, oh, green, sorry, green-haired. She may oh, have been green-eyed. Of course. Okay. The green hair was more noticeable as a detail. That, that makes sense. <laughs> when she's signing her lease, okay, sure. Part of it is I want to be in the coolest, trendiest place in the city. That's okay. That's dumb and people are dumb. But maybe she's thinking this is, the, this is only 20 minutes away from all the fun stuff that I want to do in the city. And this is what I'm going to get. Now, if the city doesn't make options of, 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 of you know, easy transition available to them, and as newcomers come, unless unless we limit immigration across cities, um, this is this is always going to be a problem. So it is a, back to an institutional problem, and it back it's back to the question of why can't cities build hang, things? No, no, but hang on a second. Who's the city in your story? They're responding to the populace, right? I mean, this is the thing. The, no, no, but city and state governments can plan ahead. They can develop York, things. I, look. First of all, there's no voice for future New Yorkers or future mm. city residents in the democratic system. Right. There's none. Mm. Right. So that's that's like that's the first kind of issue with the the, the, the picture you're painting is that most people out there, like that I woman I was talking key. about, they don't care about the future person. They're saying, look, I have me and I'm not I'm not totally faulting them for that. They're saying, look, I have needs. I I'm trying to raise my kids here. I'm trying to do whatever I am here, right? And now you want me to worry about this future person, right? So we're going to the question of long-termism. Is there no system, is there no mechanism in the city or the state to say, we see these immigration trends, and I guess part of it is because movement into the city has been so convulsive over the years um, and uncertain, but can't they say, we are seeing the trends, we can anticipate maybe 
an increase of, of, of a million people over the next decade, shouldn't we plan for this and, and grid the city with light rail and buses or whatever? So look, all you have to do whenever these stories pop up in the New York Times is read the comment section. Mm. And in the comment <laughs> section, you will immediately see there's a basic, no, there's a basic kind of uh, dynamic that's going on in this country, which is conservatives are saying the country is full and progressives are saying the cities are full. <laughs> mm. That's the basic dynamic that's going on in the country. Now, there are exceptions to that. And the Greg Abbott thing of busing migrants to, yes, to New, York. New York and Eric Adams saying, sorry, we're full is a perfect encapsulation of that. <laughs> No. So look, here's the thing. There is this kind of shuffle going on. The shuffle was going on before the pandemic. It's accelerated after the pandemic. Smaller cities in America are growing as a consequence of how expensive Boston, San Francisco and New York have become. Detroit's on the upsurge, Kansas City, Nashville, you know, San Antonio picking up a lot of the draft from Austin. This is happening because people want that urban life but they want a place that they can afford. And now, you know, mm. remote work has opened up new possibilities. And, you know, and look, I actually think that's all a good trend as long as it stays dense and transit oriented. Mm. You know, to me, what I don't think we sufficiently talk about or realize in this country is that we have a national political dialogue that goes on and it's been going on my entire lifetime that what regardless of party does not talk about how people live mm. it's like yeah. a third rail right so no one talks about how people live right and that if we lived a different way maybe we wouldn't have the amount of national malaise that we have as i see it there are two large kind of uh existential crises we have Right? There's climate change and there's social division that comes and everything that comes with social division, structural racism, the rise of fascism, all of the things, social media bubbles, all of the things that are part and parcel of social division. Violence. Right. Violence. And so to me, both of those issues are joined around this issue of how we live. And so when, where I get great hope is when I see like, like people moving to Kansas City and saying, I want to build an urban life here because that's much better for the environment if it's a truly urban life, it's truly transit, walking, bike-oriented, and they're living in apartments and not huge suburban homes, right? But I think the other thing that's enormously important about it is those are the places where the red pixels meet the blue pixels, and there mm -hmm. isn't this amount of groupthink about everything from housing to infrastructure. And I see a lot of really interesting things happening in those communities that have less of the paralysis that San Francisco uh, or New York have. Right. And so I, I just wish that there's a way to take the urbanist conversations that happen and the national political conversations mm. that happen and merge them more. Right. And hopefully that's starting to happen a little bit. You're literally giving voice in a, in a much more articulate way to one of my most obsessive rants about the, the, and this is something that we keep coming back to on this podcast, that idea that there's this conversation that is dominating our minds, that is dominating our, our news consumption habits, and then also guiding the way we vote and even judge people around us, but that has 
close to zero connection to our day-to-day lives and to the things that really affect our happiness and good living. It's an, it's insane. It's infuriating. And there are way too many um, machines mm. that unfortunately are on autopilot benefiting yeah. from this. And it's not, not talking in a conspiratorial way, obviously, just in, in the way that our political and media class, as they are right now, have no incentive to talk about people's real lives and by extension urban. But I will say, I will say though, but Vishan is one of the few people where we can point to who is collaborating with journalists and media in a way that is counter to what you're talking about. Because I think when we, when you and I usually talk about the media, right. we're talking about people peddling stupid narratives divorced from your everyday experience. And I think Vishan, the way that you've collaborated with journalists in the past with the Penn Station reimagining, with the like the Manhattan without cars, it's like, let us use this vehicle of journalism to put in front of people's faces how our world could be, how our day-to-day life could be improved if we could just start bringing some of these basic principles of urbanism into the discourse. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that because the visualization aspects of those stories especially is meant to convey this thing of saying, this is not like eat your spinach, tighten your belt. It's going to be horrible, but we've all got to give for the cause. Instead, it's trying to say we can live more joyous lives, right, in this more collective space, right? And th- so we can be less miserable in our day to day. And what that could bring us to is actually James Trislow Adams' version of the American dream which is the original version of the American dream, which is this notion of equal opportunity, not this American dream that's about the collecting of stuff. Mm. And like that, I think is, is because I think you're starting to see the knives out. Or, like there is a progressive movement clearly building around housing density and mobility, right? You see that there are groups now that are fighting for these things that we've been talking about. And the knives are coming out about the notion that these, these people, and they're usually, they're young people, these kids they're attacking the American dream, and they're not. They're actually going back to the, the true seeds of what that idea was, not kind of the post-1950s version of it. And I think we as a, whatever you want to call it, I consider myself a, a kind of a different kind of progressive. I think that band of progressivism has to like run into that story about like, what is a better, more joyous, more equitable version of the American dream? Mm. Well, that was beautiful. It was. <laughs> and not only that, it's, it actually is one of those rare occasions when we actually do the now what part of right. everything is broken, now what yes. mission that we've um, set our for ourselves. Line. But I think what, I think from there, though, I think from we should go from the joyous to the fucking depressing, don't you think? No, so before, so before the depressing, <laughs> I just want to step one point and, and I wonder how you think of it as somebody who actually comes in contact with the, um, with uh, uh, government. Usually all my fire goes at media, Mm. the way it makes us think poorly. My worry about getting to that level, to, to the point where this new kind of progressive, this, this density minded progressive um, to have real effect, it does need some, um, bipartisan buy-in, and it needs to be able to work with people in the red who are um, who are about cutting zoning regulations. Right? It needs to somehow work together to to actually get traction. Is there 
is there a world where this is happening? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting because the, again, the, the San Francisco, New York comparison, you know, one of the things I immediately encountered on my move back to New York was there is this civic infrastructure here that is a legacy of what happened in the late 1970s, where, you know, the business community really said, look, if we don't save this place, no one's going to, it's, it's going to fall apart. And remember things did, I mean, Detroit fell apart, like, and Detroit was a major wealthy industrial powerhouse of the city. People don't fully understand what the collapse of Detroit and its subsequent Renaissance means in urban history. Like it's extraordinary what happened. And New York could have fallen by the same fate were it not for the fact that there were local people, not just the business community, but local people who said, we we're going to save this place. And, you know, like I'm on, uh, there's a new New York committee that was appointed by the state and the... Uh, I mean, thank God Trump was there single-handedly saving the woman rink. What? Yeah, right, of course. Uh, oh, the, the skating uh, rink. Oh, no. oh. Yeah, and, and putting out full-page ads against five innocent black kids. <laughs> you know, um, but like, so uh, the governor and the mayor have appointed a committee. I'm on it with about 55 people from all walks of the city's uh, kind of civic life to think about how the city recovers post-pandemic. And I do think, I mean, to call it bipartisan, I mean... I don't know how many true Republicans there are on that committee, probably not very many, but there's certainly a lot of representatives of the business community. And um, I think there's a shared sensibility among uh, that, like on that group that we need to build more affordable housing across the city. We need better social infrastructure and mobility infrastructure across the city. I really missed that kind of civic infrastructure when I was in San Francisco. To me, it was gapingly obvious you know, as the dean of the architecture and planning school that was the most significant architecture and planning school in the region, if not the state, right, um, that there wasn't that kind of civic infrastructure. And, like, so, I, so I'm, I'm always kind of bemused when people look at stuff like that and they say, oh, that's just like a bunch of rich business interests and their, their uh, cozy relationship with City Hall. It's nothing further from the truth. I think it is a bunch of really concerned citizens, people who've been around the, the struggles of leadership in this city for decades, who are trying to make sure that this place survives these, like, look, we survived the 70s, we survived 9-11, now we have to survive this. The pandemic is an existential threat to the idea of the city. And I believe that the idea of the city will uh, meet and challenge and surpass that threat because human beings want to be social creatures. And, but I think you're seeing that manifest much more in New York than other cities. And I do worry about San Francisco. Mm. So I just want to throw this at you because I can imagine this question coming from progressives who might want to show some caution about your your call for cooperation with the business side. I can imagine somebody pointing to all the pencil towers that just shot up in, around New York City and say, look, we know that they're mostly vacant. These are either a financial instrument or nobody just nobody was able to afford it. How can you tell us that we are lacking housing, that it's a supply problem, but it seems clearly to be a business slash uh, city choices problem. 
Oh, this one's too easy. Come on. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the pro this goes back to the notion that this is all that's a symbolic rhetorical conversation. That is not a real conversation. The pencil towers on 57th Street, I'm not a fan of them, but how many units of housing do you think they are? In a city of 8.8 million people. I'm gonna say it's like a it's like a house per floor. There are a few thousand units of housing. And what? And 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 let, and, and let me get the let me get the argument straight. We're gentrifying Central Park South. That's where we think the <laughs> epicenter of the gentrification problem is. Central Park South, right? They, like clearly all of the displacement that's happening. No, this goes back to our earlier conversation. The displacement that's happening is in Brownsville and mm-hmm. Crown Heights and East New York and Long Island City. Like, come on, let's be real about where these issues are. Because it's just, that is such an, easy and stupid punching bag. It's like, okay, there should be some zoning reform and some of them are ugly <laughs> and like, yeah, but like the notion that that somehow is a policy indicator doesn't hold the slightest bit of water. And like, that's the problem with progressive politics. It's just become too rhetorical. Mm. It's just about like, it's about these easy, stupid targets that miss the mark time and time again. And again, you're just loading the gun of the Wall Street Journal editorial board when you talk about, like, this is not the problem. And, and look, I mean, business interests, people have, I mean, I don't think we have the time to talk about the, 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 the pros and cons of capitalism right now. But like, I'm not, I'm just not ready. I, I have built what I consider to be a, a really, um, well, we, we set out an aspiration and I think we are fulfilling that aspiration as a social impact practice. I have 30 people. We're doing really interesting work. Do you think a brown guy whose parents came here with $32 could do that in Copenhagen? It's out of the question, right? So there are things about this country that I am always going to treasure for all of its warts Right. And so for people to put all of that in this bucket of business interests, I'm sorry, it's just too easy. Mm. Like it's just way, way too easy. Right. And so I just think we've got to be much more intelligent in the battles we pick. Oh, there's your problem. Intelligence, asking Uh, for intelligence. Yeah, asking for intelligence. Um, This was, uh, if somebody does want to get more about about the pros and cons of capitalism, listen to our conversation with Rebecca Henderson. Yes. (laughs) I I just want to close the loop on on San Francisco. What do you see happening? You you, you describe it as on the precipice of being the next Detroit. I say it could be. It could be. You know, look, first of all, it needs to be, you know, I, I think the answer lies not just in the major universities, but in the community colleges. Like they, they, they've got to, they got to practice what they preach in terms of figuring out how to make the eds and meds out there be the driver of the economy beyond the tech beyond the tech companies. Beyond that, though, I don't think people who are not living out west understand just how bad. This, the, 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 the climate change problems are, right? Um, and like I lived through that San Francisco Red Sky Day. That was one of the weirdest, scariest days in my life. And, you know, you know Berkeley, California has 100 degree Fahrenheit days regularly now in the summer. It just didn't happen when I was a student in the 90s. And so there is a real... Like there needs to be like, uh, uh, like 
something like our New York Recovery Committee that includes the major universities, includes community groups, that really talks about the future of that city, where they can build housing, how they stop driving out to nature constantly because they love it so much they're going to kill it, um, you know, and how to like really think about density and transit in a new way that is, you know, climate change resilient and meets their population demand. It just seems like a far stretch from happening because, again, there is this kind of suspended disbelief of like, oh, it's just a bad fire season. Mm. Really? Um, the fire seasons that now happen in the winter, mm. you know, like, and so I, I think, I think that the Bay Area has a long way to go from where it is right now. So I'll, for a final question, I'll ask you about my, my other pet topic. Um, and Vanessa wisely relegated it to the end because this was, I got to say, one of the most fascinating inter- conversations that we've had, I think. It was great um, just being a, a spectator to uh, you two going back and forth. But um, mostly a spectator. Uh, um, heckling, a heckling spectator. Um, I, I asked at the beginning, why do why are cities so fucking depressing? <laughs> and I mean, there are many things that we can get into, but I want to limit it just to the aesthetic. Mm. Ah. Okay. Uh, this is no, no, this is great because for the vast majority of this conversation, we've talked about the contents of like kind of the underpinnings of my first book, Country mm. of Cities. Um, you that question gets to my second book, which is uh, I just submitted my uh, manuscript to my publisher, Princeton Press. Um, Does it have a title? It's called The Architecture of Urbanity. Uh, and it is about this exact topic. Uh, it is about why what we build in cities is so awful and why that is hurting the policy issues that we've been discussing in terms of people wanting density in their communities and so forth. Um And, you know, a few years ago, I gave a TED talk about the, um, the homogenization of our cities, the fact that we build them largely using the same, same means and methods all over the world to the point where no one knows when they land in an airport, whether they're in Shanghai or Mumbai or Dubai anymore. Um, the fact that, you know, we have handed the reins over to developers who are most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, lowest common denominator players right, in terms of what they build. As opposed to community input, um, city... Or even higher-end materials. Well, I mean, you're, you're asking a very architectural question, right? Right, because you're saying, why is it aesthetically so depressing, if mm-hmm. I'm understanding the mm-hmm. question? Mm-hmm. And so, sure, community input's important. Like, that, all, that all-affordable housing project that I'm talking about, like, that was a community where local electives and the community board really wanted to see this project, which is, like, about 11 buildings, largely built out of brick. Now, they don't look all the same like the, you know, the towers from the 60s. But, you know, there's, I think there's a reason. You know, brick is a material that's about the same size as most human beings' hands. There's a human scale to it. And if it's detailed properly, if it's not this brick as wallpaper stuff, but like real brick, there is a kind of human connection to it. But that's not to be nostalgic or historicist. These buildings don't look like they're from the 1900s. They're still modern buildings. Um You know, I don't think there are a lot of people who are fans of like, out my window, I can see that blue glass middle finger that was built mm-hmm. in Madison Square Park, <laughs> right? And that is like a middle finger to all of Lower Manhattan, right? 
And I, I don't know, I've never met anyone who likes that building. In fact, even like the architecture firm <laughs> that designed that building doesn't like that building. And so like, you know, that is par- partially it's homogenization of materials. Partially it's just, we need to demand better architecture. And I think, you know, look, a lot of this is also just, it goes, goes back to the fact that we don't live in a culture that's very educated or cares very much about the, I'm going to go beyond aesthetics to the experience of the built environment, Mm -hmm. right? So people on a regular basis move out to suburban areas where like, you know, you can't tell the street corners apart because it's the same four chain stores and parking lots. You know, it's a big, beautiful country when you get away from all of that strip mall stuff. And so what I argue for is an architecture that responds to climate, to community and to local construction techniques. Like we've got a project in Mongolia that is completely like, even though it's a totally modern project is trying to respond to um, local building techniques, colors that people are familiar with materials that people are familiar with. So even though it's a modern building and, and probably a different scale than what people are used to, at least there are things with which people can find resonance. Mm. And I think that the pro- what you're calling depression, I call it ennui. I think it is this kind of sense that we are losing. You know, Harari talks about how our species is made unique by the notion of narrative, right? The narrative is what drives us as homo sapiens. And I think we are losing our narratives in what we're building because these places are becoming so homogenous. Um, and to me, that's what I interpret in your question about like the, the new parts of cities becoming depressing. And I don't think they have to be that way. And I think there's a group of a new generation of architects who are looking at the materials we're using, looking at the, the vocabulary and the expression. And again, without mimicking context or trying to be historicist, it, trying to do this act of interpretation and archeology span about those narratives and how those narratives and manifest in modern buildings um, and, and modern public spaces. As just a random person living in a city, how do I go about demanding better architecture? Demand better architecture. I mean, you know, here's the top Who do what institution? Where do I need to hang that 95 thesis? <laughs> the mayor, the city planning commission. Here's the tough part. I have never seen a world where it works well to try to regulate it. This is an aesthetic thing, you know, like San Francisco has a quote unquote, they call it the beauty contest. And all it's done is actually given San Francisco its own form of homogeneity, like almost all the multifamily housing, the little there is of it that goes up. It's all like, it has to be five colors Hmm. with lots of like little punches and like, it all looks the same. You can't regulate good design. You have to take bad design with good design, but what you can do is there needs to be more public discourse about people demanding this. And again, not just because it's an aesthetic elite thing, but because... No, because beauty makes it, us happier and feel more connected and feel like our, our day-to-day um, landscape is meaningful and not just... Uh, that doesn't make us zone out and want to go and play a computer game because it looks prettier there. 
So I want to focus on your words connected and meaningful because that's what comes back to this notion of narrative. Beauty is a really hard, mushy thing to get your hands around. No, it shouldn't be. You're you're contributing to the problem by by relegating beauty outside of the conversation, I think. Right. Like, so I... Beauty is something that we respond to. Well, right. But what is it? I mean, so, you know, like we try to practice something I call connect... Like porn, know it when you see it. Well, we try to practice something called connective design which is this notion of how, like, so like our domino sugar thing, that can't be anywhere else. It can only be where it's cited. Like, so that's one of my key litmus tests as we look at a new project. We're designing the expansion of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Famous IMP building, we're designing this big expansion. And I want to see it and look at it and say, this can't be anywhere else. It's one Mm -hmm. of my key tests for a thing. Because... That means that we're somehow creating connection to the local narrative and the place and the history. And it's out of that that I hope people find their own sense of beauty. Because my sense of beauty is going to differ from your sense of beauty. Mm. But if you can create something that people feel connected to, they will take care of it and love it and want it to be in their neighborhood. And that, I think, to me, for me, is the test. That's a great... How do you, what's your name for it? Connective... Design? I just call it connective design. Connective design. It's just this notion that it's connective. Because, you know, look, it's pretty easy to do. It's like you look at these blue glass buildings that go up, and if 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 it can be anywhere else, it's failed the test. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a great, great, great point. I, I really look forward to this book. Um, Vanessa, do you want to ask the, the blind spot questions? I'm actually interested. Um, do you have time for two more minutes, Vishan? Yeah, our kicker question. Yeah. Our kicker question that we like to ask all of our guests, um, and I'm curious to get your take. Um, what are the biggest blind spots on the left and the biggest blind spots on the right? Wow. Um, the biggest blind spots on the right is a lack of belief in the public. I mean, I think that there is, a, you know, undergirding traditional conservative philosophy is this Hobbesian worldview that people are basically out for their own self-interests. And I think that time and time again, people prove that that is not their only motivation or even their prime motivation. And I think that is just their biggest blind spot. I think the biggest blind spot on the left is, um, is just really understanding the value of like, individual entrepreneurialism and the notion that like, you know, we, you know, like to me, it's interesting that a lot of immigrants from formerly socialist countries get turned off by a lot of the rhetoric of the left because, and especially like if you're a person of color and you've experienced kind of like a, 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 like a dominant government that, kind of tries to create a nanny state around everything, you know, like I I think sometimes the biggest blind spot on the left is that there's, 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 there's insufficient regard for the freedoms of this country. Right. Like, like, and I, I, like, and again, I really focus on this notion of entrepreneurialism. Like I, I, I think entrepreneurialism is an incredibly empowering thing. And especially like speaking as a person of color, like I think it's freed me from a lot of the horrible things that I experienced in a lot of my other workplaces. 
And it's very hard to explain to people on the left sometimes that like, I couldn't have done this in so many of the countries and societies that they admire so much. Mm. I wish I could find a more like pithy or articulate way to say what I just said, but that's what it is. No, it's good. It's we live in uncertainty here on uncertain things. So it's the the, the ment- intellectual processing is is part of the jam. <laughs> also, we eschew pithiness on this podcast. <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> Vishan, thank you. This was thank so you great. Thank you so much. I, I love this conversation. It was really my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We're uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and enemies. Check out our newsletter. And did they mention share us with your friends and enemies? Till next time. Stay sane. Good Lord. What is even happening with this microphone?